Here we go. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new time to sing your song again whatever may pass and whatever lies before me let me be singing when the evening comes bless the lord oh my soul oh my soul worship his holy name sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul. I'll worship Your holy cannot tell you how much God admires and enjoys willingness. Some people refuse to do things because they think, well, I'm not good enough or I can't do it well enough. And Nowhere in Scripture do I find that God says you have to be the best in order to serve God. Here's what I do find. 
He does not choose the wise or the talented. He takes the foolishness of this world to confound the wise. That impresses me so much. Because I know how foolish I can be. And how wise I'm not. Thanks, David. Excellent. 10,000 reasons to praise the Lord. I, it makes it almost unbelievable to think that we're not praying all day, every day, giving God praise. That we're not able to give thanks in everything. Because that's what the scripture commands. Let me give another example. Scott. Wave at me, Scott. Okay. Scott's here pretty much every Sunday morning. I mean, he almost never misses. And he comes and helps Cordia get on the bus. And he helps wheel her in. And he sits by her. And he takes care of things that she needs. If she needs a drink of water, guess who goes and gets it? Not Cordia. She just sits there in that wheelchair. You'd think she'd jump up and run downstairs and get her own drink of water. No, Scott goes and gets it for her. I appreciate you, Scott. Thanks. And then there are, this morning after service, as you may know, there's a fellowship lunch. And uh, you're all invited. Even that's not even all of it. You're all expected to stay and, and help uh, eat it up. But generally, when it's over, yeah, generally when it's over, there's three or four people every time who stay and help clean up. And uh, I'm grateful for that because often I cannot stay and clean up. But I'm thinking one of them has to leave early today to get to work. And uh, that's going to leave like one or two. One of them's out of town. That's going to leave like one or none. And... uh, I'm hoping that there are some other folks who will say, Brother Casey, yeah, I'll commit to stay and help clean up today. Okay, You don't even have to stand up and say so. You can just wave at me. <laughs> okay, one, two. Any more? Three. Thank you. Four. Okay, good, good. I'm encouraged. Amen. That'll be wonderful. Thank you all so much. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a very interesting book in the Bible. Nehemiah is written after the 70 years of captivity for the nation of Judah. When the northern, 10 northern tribes split off from the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and formed their own country, which was called Israel, the southern tribes became known as the nation of Judah. And the Ten northern tribes immediately went into idolatry because their king, Jeroboam, did not want the people going back to Jerusalem, which is located in the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't want them going back there because he said they'll be taken back in. They'll want to rejoin the uh, the, uh, two southern tribes and I'll lose my kingdom. And so he built two golden calves and put one in the middle of the country and one in the far north of the country and said, now these are our gods, this is where we're going to worship, we're going to set up altars here, 
And that's what he did. And as a result, God judged Israel over and over and over and over and over again. Finally, allowing them to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians and scattered across the face of the known world. The two southern tribes... Serve the Lord a little more often and a little better, but not near like they ought to have. And eventually, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched on them, carried them, them off into captivity, and carried them to the land of Babylon, Iraq. And there they lived in cities. The first time he carried them off was in 306 B.C., was the first time, and then in 586 B.C., because the people he had left behind to uh, continue to work and to pay taxes grew rebellious, he went back and just wiped out the city of Jerusalem, carried off everybody except the, the, the ones who were old, too old to travel, and the ones who were too weak and disabled to travel. The king, just before that, was a young man that God had sent two prophets to, to share with him that he needed to lead the people back to God. And one of the prophets said, God has told me that you're never going to see the city of Babylon. This city is going to be destroyed, but you'll never see the city of Babylon. The other prophet came in and said, well, God told me that you're going to live in the city of Babylon until your death. And so he thought, maybe both these guys are wrong. I mean, it sounds like two opposing prophecies. As it happened, when the city of Jerusalem finally fell, they took this king and all of his children, and they left the city of Jerusalem and went down the hill to Jericho and then started across country to the city of Babylon. And the first night out after they left the city of Jerusalem. They stopped where they were going to camp, and they took all of this man's children and killed them and threw them into a ditch and just piled up rocks over the top of them. Then they took that little Babylonian, Iraqi, serrated spoon and scooped out his eyeballs and cut them off. He lived in Babylon till the day he died, but he never saw the city. I got to tell you, God's word may seem a little confusing to us at times. You better believe it. It's always true. We may not know how he's going to do what he's going to do, but you can stake your life your eternal life, on the fact that God's Word is true. Well, 70 years goes by. Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son becomes king, but he didn't want to be king over this empire, and so he uh, leaves and goes and does an archaeological dig in the city of Nineveh, which is across the country, and... While he is there, he sets his son, 
up on the throne, Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar, Belshazzar, I think, and his son throws this months-long party for all of his friends to show how wonderful he is as a, and how gracious he is and how, you know, and uh, while that's all going on, Daniel, who is now an old, old man, he was carried off in one of the early captivities uh, and uh, is now the, <clears throat> the head of the University of Babylon teaching uh, astronomers and uh, educated folks. He's the, the head of that school and, and is teaching them things uh, about future prophecy. And he comes in because while they are eating and drinking out of the gold dishes that Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple, been in storage all these 70 years, they take those and they're worshiping the gods of gold and silver and wood and, and a hand appears and begins to carve into the plaster on the wall. Just a hand, okay? That doesn't surprise us because we've all seen the Adam family and we know what thing does, okay? He, he crawls around. He waves at people and he does, okay? So that doesn't surprise us. But it really took the Babylonians by surprise. I mean, Belshazzar, he sobered up in a hurry. And nobody can interpret the translation. And so he calls for Daniel. And Daniel comes in and Daniel takes a look at it and says, oh, yeah, God can interpret that. He says, okay, tell me what it says. Daniel says, you're not going to like it. Tell me what it says. He says, well, it says that you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. I talk to people all the time who think that they're going to go to heaven and God's going to weigh their good deeds and their bad deeds and get, going to weigh things out. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says it happened to Belshazzar before he died. Actually, the night before he died. God weighed him in the balance and took him out. The second part of the prophecy. Your kingdom is over. And it's been given to the Medes and the Persians. And sure enough, while Belshazzar's having this big party, the Medes and the Persians have diverted the Euphrates River around the city and they march under the walls of the city on dry land up this riverbed. They get in and they open the gates of the city and they take the city without a fight. And that night they took the city of Babylon they ended the Babylonian Empire and they killed Belshazzar. And then a man named Cyrus comes to the throne. He's the conqueror. And he sends out a rule that says that the, uh, he delivers a rule that says the Jews can go back to the city of Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. What's interesting about that is 150 years before, Isaiah, the prophet, wrote it in his word, in his book, in the word of God. God told him, a man named Cyrus is going to be my servant. He's going to rebuild the temple. And so Cyrus wrote the proclamation that allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. And they did it under a man named Ezra. And when the temple gets built, 
The old people, the old, old people who remember the temple that was there before are really disheartened because it doesn't look anything like the old temple. I mean, Solomon had all this wealth and he put a whole bunch of it in this temple as a means of glorifying God. But the young people who have never had a temple of their own to worship and to make their offerings and their sacrifices, they are all excited. And so there's a great deal of weeping on the day of dedication. Old people weeping because it's just not the same, and young people weeping because, yeah, we got us a temple again. Oh, man, this is so wonderful. Oh, I love it, I love it, I love it. Sure enough. Meanwhile, the walls of the city are still broken down. And the enemies of Israel live all around, and they're just not real excited about having this temple rebuilt. And Nehemiah, a few more emperors have come down the line. Cyrus, Darius, first and second, and now Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is Artaxerxes' butler. Okay? Woo! Which means he gets to taste everything on Artaxerxes' plate before he eats it, in case somebody's trying to poison him. Okay? We don't do that anymore. Okay? Apparently, among newly married couples, Wives got tired of having somebody invited over every night for supper to taste the food before her husband would eat it. And the husbands just had to learn to trust them, even if they didn't cook like Mama used to cook. Okay. Nehemiah finds out from one of his friends who's come back from Jerusalem that the city is still in shambles. Walls are broken down. Very few people living there. And Nehemiah says, oh, God, what do you want me to do about this? And he prays. Incredible prayer here in the first chapter of Nehemiah. You've got to read the whole book. We're just dealing with one chapter today. But he reads this, and uh, or he prays this prayer. And then he goes into the king. And if you come into the king with a sad look on your face, <clears throat> the king knows that you know something he doesn't know. So there's a good chance he's going to kill you instead of letting you taste his food. But Nehemiah comes in and the king says, Nehemiah, my friend, what's the problem? And Nehemiah tells him. And the king says, no problem. Here, he has one of the men write a letter. Okay, Give Nehemiah and everybody who wants to go home with him everything they need. To rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Give them safe passage. Don't anybody mess with them. You'll find the letter. I think it's the end of chapter 1. Or maybe beginning of chapter 2. And Nehemiah gets there. And in 56 days. Less than two months. They rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Wow. If you ever entered to Jerusalem. And you see the city as it is now, you know that's not what they rebuilt. But you look at walls of the old city and you can see what they rebuilt, and that is incredible. 
He divided it up by families and said, okay, your family is responsible for this. Now, I'm not talking about the Boer family unless the entire Boer family, all the Boers lived here in Festus. Okay? I'm not talking about the Randy Casey family. I'm talking about the John Casey family. He had two boys, and one of them had six boys, and one of them had four boys. Two others of them had one boy each. Okay? And so, you know, extended family. Divides it up, and he says, you build from this gate to this gate, you build from this gate to this gate, you build from this gate to this gate, and he just divided it all up, and they rebuilt the walls of the city. They get it all done, and everybody's pretty excited about it. Chapter 8. They had been taken care of. The end of chapter 7. They bring their tithes and their offerings to the church. The beginning of chapter 7 tells who they all were that came back and who they all were that were living there. It ended up being 42,360 people plus their manservants and maidservants. 7,337 of those, 245 singing men and women, big choir, all their horses, their camels, donkeys, sheep, and some of the chief of the fathers gave to the work, 1,000 drams of gold, 50 basins, 530 priest garments. Some of the chief of the fathers gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 drams of gold and 2,200 pounds of silver. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 drams of gold and 2,000 pounds of silver and 67 priestly garments. And so they all came to Jerusalem in the seventh month, beginning of the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles, they all came for a celebration. Now, chapter 8 starts with this, the beginning of this celebration. All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe, the guy who was responsible for rebuilding the temple, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded to Israel. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Law of Moses. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. Upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. Minimum of four hours. Maybe six hours. Before the men and women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood before a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose. Now, the pulpit is not this. We call it the pulpit. It's not. This is the podium. This is the pulpit. Okay? Part I'm standing on. This is the pulpit. And they built one. For Ezra to stand on. So that everybody could see him. 
Elevate him a little. Got it? Here we go. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maaseiah on his right hand and on his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hassam, Hashbadanan, Zechariah, and Meshumah. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. He was higher than all the people. He opened this book. Everybody didn't have a copy like we do. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Whoa. Stood up for the reading of the Word of God? Why in the world would they do that? I mean, they obviously had a place to sit. They wouldn't have had anything to stand up about. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. With lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their heads to the ground. Let's demonstrate, because I don't want you to forget this. I want everybody to stand up. Okay. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen. See, Brother Casey, that's almost Pentecostal. Oh, no, no. That's almost biblical. That is almost biblical. They lifted up their hands. You say, why would anybody do that? Well, because it's a little humbling. Okay? You lift your hands in a church service... People are going to start looking at you, okay? Unless they understand that you're doing it to honor God. I've seen people raise their hands like this. It's it's like they're expecting something from God. Or perhaps it's like they're offering themselves to God. I don't think it matters. I usually raise my hands like this. You say, Brother Casey, you raise your hand? Yeah. Not all the time. But often. Sure. Why? Because you raise your hands to the people that you honor. Let me tell you how I know that. The other night, there was a professional baseball team playing in St. Louis. Y'all may have heard, on, heard of them. Okay? The Los Angeles Dodgers. Okay? Did anybody stand up and wave their hands or wave towels over their head for the Dodgers? 
No. They were not honored in St. Louis. And for very good reason. They didn't play very well. Okay? There was an opposing team wearing white uniforms with birds on their chest. Okay? I mean, what's with that? And when, it was, when they hit the ball, it was like those birds took that ball and went <laughs> across the infield with it. Okay? And I didn't see the game. But in the highlights the next day, which is really all the game I care about, there were people standing there with white towels or T-shirts or something, waving them over their heads and screaming loudly. For what reason? To honor a group of millionaires who just finished playing a game. Now think that through. That's nuts. You can be seated. I have a God who wins all the time. Who always wins and He does not play games. He's always serious. And when his word is read, people ought to stand up and give praise. Then they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin, I'd like to be his friend in heaven. We'll always be jamming. A cub, Shabbatiah, Hodijah, Masiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That's why when we come to church, I don't just read the text and read four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten chapters and then send you home. In fact, I'll often stop and comment on parts of verses as I'm reading. You notice that? It's because I want you to get the sense of the Scripture. I want you to know what God's talking about and what the Scripture's trying to say unto us. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershetah, that means governor, by the way. Okay. Has any of you ever met Tershetah Nixon? Okay. I'm so old, I met Tershetah Hearns. Okay. You young kids don't remember Warren Hearns. I met him. Okay. And Tershatha Ashcroft. Yeah. And I know, or excuse me, I knew Tershatha Carnahan's brother intimately. And I know his nephew very well. He pastors over St. Roberts, Missouri. His nephew. His brother passed away. But I know his brother's widow. Sweet people. 
Tershitha. Now, if you call them Tershitha, they're not going to have any idea what you're talking about because they don't speak Persian. Okay? But I want you to know what the word means. Nehemiah, who's the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. When's the last time you saw somebody crying because they did not live up to what the Scriptures said they ought to be? That doesn't happen much anymore. But it happened in Nehemiah's day. And God blessed the nation of Israel incredibly for the next 150 years. I wonder what it would take to get God's people to honor the Word of God. I mean, pretty much everybody's got a copy now. If you don't have a copy, you can get one. It's called the Holy Bible. If you want the translation that will do you the most good and is most nearly written, translated from the original documents. The original documents aren't available, but there are numerous copies of them. Get one that says authorized version or King James version. There's a lot of other versions. I recognize that. And the reason there's a lot of other translations is because you can't copyright the King James. So there's no way to make money out of it. And so they offer a new translation, and then they can copyright that, and then they can get all the proceeds. Okay? The big one of late has been the New International Version. It's going to be around a long time. Why? Because Zondervan, the publisher, has all the money from the Left Behind series to advertise it. Is it a good translation? How do I say this? It's a fairly good translation. The only thing that keeps it from being a good translation is all the stuff that they left out and all the words they changed the meaning of and changed the words so that it changes the meaning of the Bible. And God said in Revelation, don't add to or take away from this book. Or I'll be taken away from your part. Okay? You say, but Brother Casey, the King James is so old-fashioned. Duh. You think God's not old-fashioned? He's been around like forever. Actually, not even like forever. He's been around forever. And he's going to be around forever. And he's going to be as old-fashioned a million years from now as he was a million years ago when his word was already written. And I want the copy that's most, most close, most nearly exactly like the one that he wrote in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled 